This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by a very special guest. It's Nicholas Meyer. Hi, Nicholas. How are you? I'm fine. And yourself? I'm not too bad. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to be able to talk to you. You're someone who obviously our listeners know very well as a massive figure uh, kind of in the world of Star Trek. But what we're talking about really today is another kind of fictional universe that you've played a pretty big part in. And that's the the world of Sherlock Holmes. Tell me a little bit about how you kind of um, got involved in that world in the first place. Well, I became involved with Sherlock Holmes, I suppose, at around the age of 11 when my dad gave me the complete uh, Arthur Conan Doyle Holmes stories to read, and I probably ingested them at a gulp. Um, and I was never really wild about most of the Sherlock Holmes movies. I, I only really liked the Doyle stories, although there there have been a couple since. Um, but that was sort of one part of the equation that ended up with me writing these things. The other part was the fact that my father was a psychoanalyst. And people would say to me in high school, you know, oh, your old man's a shrink. Is he a Freudian? And I didn't know. So I said, Pop, are you a Freudian? And he said, well, it's really a somewhat silly question. And I said, why? Why is it a silly question? And he said, because it's no more possible to discuss the history of psychoanalysis and not begin with Freud than it is to discuss the history, say, of the discovery of America without starting with Columbus or the Vikings. But to suppose that nothing has happened since the Vikings is to be pretty rigid, pretty doctrinaire. When a patient comes to see me, my father said, I listen to what he says. I listen to how they say it. I'm very interested in what they don't say. And then I am in sort searching for clues from them as to why they are not happy. Oh, are they punctual? What kind of clothes are they wearing? What are their what's their body language? And gee, a light bulb went off in my head when I was listening to this because I suddenly knew who my father reminded me of. He reminded me of Sherlock. 
And then I found myself wondering how much did Arthur Conan Doyle know about the life and writing of Sigmund Freud? And the first thing you're aware of is, oh, they're both doctors. Oh, they both died in London within nine years of one another. And then you remember that Sherlock Holmes was a cocaine addict and that Sigmund Freud was for a time a cocaine user. He got interested in the drug when he wrote a paper about it with two eye doctors for the uses of cocaine as an anesthetic during eye surgery. Then you learn that Arthur Conan Doyle studied ophthalmology in Vienna. And these coincidences began piling up. And being as I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, it took me about 15 years before I got around <laughs> to putting it all together and calling it the 7% solution, Sherlock Holmes meets Sigmund Freud. And that's how I sort of got into it. It's a long-winded answer, but I'm sticking with it. And that book was really uh, a kind of explosive success, I think, wasn't it? I mean, it was a massive bestseller, got adapted into a film, which you wrote the screenplay for as well. Uh, and then you followed it up kind of over the years with three other uh, Sherlock Holmes novels, of which the the latest one, The Peculiar Protocols, has, has come out most recently. I'm kind of curious. I mean, obviously, uh, we, we can come on in a minute to talk a little bit about Star Trek, but with Sherlock Holmes... As with Star Trek, it seems like it's a world that keeps drawing you back, but often there's a there's a big gap between um, the the projects that you're working on, if you know what I mean. What, what is it that kind of keeps pulling you back to do another one each time? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, the first after I did the seven percent solution, um, my publishers came back because it it was a a wild uh, publishing success and the movie was a success and there was the Oscar nomination. So could I do another one? And then there's always the, the question about whether you could make lightning strike twice, whether you could, you know, pull a Royal flush again. And so I wrote the West end horror and then I didn't write them for a while because I was doing other things. And then I was supposed to be working on a project that, fell through and so I suddenly had time on my hands this was I guess in the 90s about 1990 um, and I got the idea for Sherlock Holmes uh, meets the Phantom of the Opera because the dates all worked out and so I wrote the Canary Trainer which was published in 1993 um, and then I didn't write a Holmes book until uh, you know a year ago um, in the same way that one doesn't uh, one hopes uh, open one's mouth unless one has something to say. And if there wasn't an idea that seemed peculiarly suited or uniquely suited to Sherlock, I wasn't going to write a book just to try to sort of sandwich him in. Um, but then a series of events uh, occurred and I became interested in something called the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion which is a very famous uh, literary hoax and forgery, very destructive forgery. And it occurred to me that it might be useful, it might be interesting, speaking as a forger myself, if one says to set a thief to catch a thief, maybe set a forger to catch a forger. So that's how the last, the adventure of the peculiar protocols came into being. There is a Holmes Star Trek connection of sorts that ought to be mentioned. I think 
the difference between Star Trek and me and Holmes and me is that the Holmes and me was organic. It was, as I say, from when I was 11 years old. Star Trek was something I knew nothing about uh, until I was offered to direct, and as it turned out right, the second Star Trek movie, The Wrath of Khan, um, which was not the original title. And um, at, when I started working on Star Trek, which was utterly unfamiliar, but what did occur to me fairly early on was that the adventures of Kirk in outer space uh, seemed to remind me strongly uh, of the earthbound English sea captain during the Napoleonic Wars, Captain Horatio Hornblower, the books by C.S. Forrester, which were the sort of precursor of the Patrick O'Brien novels, etc. And um, I thought, wow, this is Hornblower in outer space. I know how to do that. Um, so already it was sort of in the Britannic camp. And then you come across Spock, who does seem to be very Holmes-like in his uh, dispassionate, uh, logical mind. Uh, Leonard Nimoy, who played Spock, once said to me that he never played Spock as a passionless man, rather a man who was always trying to keep his passions in check, which I think is also true of Sherlock. Uh, and in Star Trek VI, I actually had Spock imply that he was descended from Holmes. I love that line. I mean, I think fans have kind of argued about that line. And, and some people have said, is he saying he's descended from Holmes or is he just saying he's descended from Conan Doyle? Because I suppose people have read it in different ways. Um, I mean, I've always taken it as a joke, but I, I discovered through researching this, some fans have taken it absolutely seriously and believe that, you know, on Spock's mother's side, his ancestry should be traced all the way back to, to Sherlock Holmes. But then there's this sort of... Um, Huge question, I suppose, you know, it, does that mean that in the universe of Star Trek, uh, Sherlock Holmes is real? And and then when we come to your books, I mean, one of the things I love about your Sherlock Holmes books is there's this kind of playful sense of them. And you sort of you, you're almost a character in the book yourself because you describe, you know, how, how you came to discover this manuscript or whatever. And I actually listened to this one on the audiobook. So I had you kind of uh, interposing yourself into the story, sort of performing the footnotes, which, you know, is, is really good fun. <laughs> but um, but in the introduction to this one, of course, you talk about what you've been doing recently. And you mentioned you've been working on Star Trek Discovery. So then there's this kind of... Uh, you know, okay, so if Sherlock Holmes is real within the world of Star Trek, but Star Trek Discovery is real within the world of the Peculiar Protocols, it, there's this kind of, um, it's a very co complicated relationship between, I suppose, reality and fiction. And I, I get the sense from reading these books of yours that that's something that appeals to you, the kind of, um, the, the, the game-like aspect of it in some ways. I think it very much does. Uh, Michael Chabon once wrote that all fiction is fan fiction. And mm -hmm. I, I would add to it, as near as I can figure out, the entire history of art, any kind of art, is a history of cut and paste. <laughs> and we sort of build on what came before. Conan Doyle, uh, and it's always curious that we mention his middle name, even though there's no hyphen. It, it, I guess it just sounds cooler than just Doyle. Um, Conan Doyle 
started this thing by claiming that he was Dr. Watson, just back from Afghanistan, and uh, sharing rooms with this peculiar man who was the world's first consulting detective. Um, and there are these 60 stories, four novellas and 56 short stories. But when you run out, it's very sad. And so the temptation, and I am certainly not the first who has succumbed to it, to write sort of continuing adventures, continuing cases, continuing episodes, is by no means uh, unique to me. Um, but once you do that, you inevitably, I think, fall into the game, which is trying to, A, account for the provenance of another manuscript, and B, to reconcile all Doyle's errors, because mm -hmm. he put a great deal of effort into his science fiction. He wrote the first version of King Kong. It was called The Lost World. Um, he wrote The Poison Belt. He wrote the Professor Challenger books. And he put a great deal of effort, even more, into his historical novels, of which the best known and one of the classic medieval swashbucklers ever written is The White Company. But the home stories, he more or less dashed off one a week, and he could never keep the details straight um, because he was not fastidious in this department. He once said, I have never much striven for it, meaning accuracy of detail, and no doubt have made some serious blunders in consequence. What matter so long as I hold my readers? For example, was Watson wounded in the arm or in the leg? Is Mrs. Hudson's name Mrs. Hudson or Mrs. Turner? And so forth. Does Watson's wife at one point calls him James, not John. And to give you an idea of the lengths to which the fans will go to reconcile these incongruities, these inconsistencies, I think it was Dorothy Sayers, no slouch in the mystery story department herself, who said that, yes, the H in John H. Watson's uh, middle name stands for uh, Hamish, which is Scottish for James, and his <laughs> wife was sometimes fond of anglicizing Watson's middle wow. name, <laughs> hence James. Um, and then there was the fact that all three Moriarty brothers seemed to be named James. And right. some commentators said, you know, two might smack of a kind of weird you know, coincidence, but by the time you learn that it's three, it becomes some sort of sinister manifestation. <laughs> so, yes, if you haven't got a sense of humor, you shouldn't be doing this stuff. Fair enough. Absolutely. And, and there's a definite parallel, I think, um, between, I suppose, the Sherlockians, this kind of hardcore Sherlock fans and the Trekkies who, you know, similarly will kind of try to reconcile disparities in canon and uh, sort of make sense of things that apparently contradict each other and so on. I mean, you came to Star Trek sort of as an outsider, I suppose, uh, you, you know, not as one of those fans. But I wonder whether it helped in some ways that you did have this kind of fandom in a different, uh, a different universe, if you know what I mean. Did that make it easier? easier to kind of understand where the sort of obsessive Star Trek fans were coming from. 
You know, first of all, I've I have never given much thought to the fans. I don't believe that art is made by a committee. Mm-hmm. I think art art is a is a dictatorship. You have the right to not partake. You can not read it, not watch it, not listen to it, etc. Um, but I I am very old school, I suppose, in thinking that yeah, my world and welcome to it. Um, uh, so I never, it wasn't that I held the fans in any kind of, um, formal disregard, but let's put it a different way. I would never tell you a joke that I didn't think was funny on the off chance that you might be amused. I have to be amused first. If I like it, then I think other people will like it. So basically when I'm writing, no matter what I'm writing, I'm writing for myself. It's the book I want to read, the movie I want to see, etc. Um, so I, once I got the idea that Star Trek for me was Hornblower in outer space, then I just gave vent to all my nautical impulses and associations. You know, when I did the Wrath of Khan, I redesigned the uniforms, I redesigned the ships, I redesigned the way they talked and so forth. Uh, to make it something that I could relate to. Um, and I think, you know, asking the fans, again, with all due respect, what they want is a kind of folly. They'll know it when they see it, and they'll reject it if it's crummy. Um, somebody said to me early on, well, you can't kill Spock. I said, sure, you can kill him. The only question is whether you kill him well. If it's perceived as the working out of some clause in some actor's contract, then they'll throw things at the screen and they'll be right to throw them. But if it proceeds organically from the story, then they'll accept it, which I'm pleased and proud to and relieved to say they did. Anyway, that. I can't remember your question, but that's my answer. <laughs> that's okay. That's fair enough. Um, I'm kind of interested. It sounds from the things you've been saying about, you know, finding Hornblower as a kind of way into Star Trek. Obviously, with the Sherlock, I mean, Sherlock, you were already, you kind of had your way in. But it seems like with all these books, it's about, it's got to be Sherlock plus something, whether it's a kind of uh, a literary something or a real world something. I mean, with the protocols, uh, I have to say, I, w- I was ashamed. I-, I hadn't heard of these protocols. I read the whole novel and it wasn't until I got to the epilogue that I realised that this was a real thing. And I felt like I'd kind of, um, I felt kind of stupid for not realising this earlier in a way. But um, it-, it seems like with all these stories, you're kind of looking for something, a sort of entry point or a kind of an anchor in some ways uh, to- that-, that sort of brings it into the story. If it makes you feel any better, the head of the Baker Street Irregulars, which is the largest Sherlock Holmes society, I think, anywhere, mm-hmm. who's a lovely, lovely man, read my book and and said exactly what you had said. He thought for the longest time th- that the protocols were something that I had dreamt up. Right. Uh, and imagine his shock. Well, anybody can now Google, as I'm sure you you have, mm-hmm. the learned protocols of the you know uh, so this is a real thing um i think for me to write a home story it it's important that the that the gimmick not a gimmick 
if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. If it's just about, you know, having him meet famous people or something, that is of no interest to me. Um, the fact that he winds up going into, his, you know, sort of drug cocaine withdrawal under the auspices of Sigmund Freud and that they collaborate on a case, that those are all sort of organic conceits on my part. It's not just... Oh, you know, let's have him meet Disraeli or something. It, that's not enough. Um, number one. Number two is it has to be putting aside whether the participants are famous or not. And most of them in the adventure of the peculiar protocols are not famous. I, Anna Stronsky is not famous. Edward English Walling is not famous. But these are the fact that they're real people is sort of. Almost beside the point. Um, what is not beside the point is the topic, uh, you know, the protocols themselves. So you, I think it, there has to be some piece of something that doesn't just make it another Sherlock Holmes story. There is one in my in my four books and there's a fifth one on the way. Um, there is one, the the West End Horror, which is a pure Sherlock Holmes adventure. It, there is no, there is no sort of outside. He he meets people who are well known, but they're all doing what they were actually doing in the first week of March, eighteen ninety five, and they're part of the story. But it, it but the case doesn't go wider it has no wider application as seven percent as the adventure of the peculiar protocols does i'm not sure where the canary trainer falls in that this is the one about the phantom of the opera i mean i suppose there's that kind of sense of, of bringing in not only real people but kind of um sort of literary material uh, as well if you know what i mean and and kind of it kind of interests me because obviously you know coming at Sherlock from a Star Trek point of view I mean there are the lines in Star Trek 6 and I think that that whole kind of Spock storyline where he's trying to work out what's going on on the Enterprise you know very much feels like a sort of mini uh, a little mini Sherlock Holmes story Um, but there's also of course I don't know whether when you put that material into Star Trek 6 had you seen the episodes of Next Generation where they had done kind of Sherlock Holmes dress up basically they had data dressing up as Holmes no that's interesting because they so they'd sort of and in, and in that show because they you know they have this uh conceit of the holodeck that means you can kind of recreate magically recreate things so they could recreate Holmes they also recreated Freud in a different episode so in a way it's that same thing of sort of borrowing borrowing all these characters and all this kind of material and being able to bring it into the show um you can do that with Star Trek and in your Holmes novels you're sort of doing something similar in some ways you know thinking okay you know what happens if Sherlock Holmes meets Oscar Wilde or whatever it is um and that is quite a compelling uh i suppose it's something that conan doyle couldn't do because conan doyle is just writing fiction whereas you're sort of writing fi- fiction that's kind of grounded in a reality that uh, it, in a way that his isn't if you see what i mean yes i do it also occurs to me that um you may or may not know this but after the first sherlock holmes a novel or novella, A Study in Scarlet, was mm. uh, published, which was in the 1887 Christmas Beaton's Annual. A man from Lippincott's American magazine came to England and took 
Arthur Conan Doyle and another writer to dinner and commissioned a novel from each of them. And, the, and he commissioned a Sherlock Holmes novel from Doyle, which was the sign of the four. But the other person at that dinner was Oscar Wilde. Oh, wow. And the novel that he produced was the picture of Dorian Gray. Gosh. That must have been some dinner. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably the closest that Holmes ever came to Wilde. So it's not as much of a stretch as you might imagine. Uh, I'm sure Doyle, who was must have been starstruck to be sitting at the same table. I mean, he was just a young doctor who had been writing short stories because no patients were showing up in his office. Um, and he, you know, trying to make a nickel. Um, and there was this glamorous, brilliant guy. And actually, when you read The Sign of the Four and you look at the character of uh, Sholto, I can't remember which brother it is, but mm -hmm. it, it's clearly a kind of a portrait of Wilde anyway. Um, right. So, you know, all this stuff was feathered in long before I got there. <laughs> Amazing. Um, the other thing it makes me think of is, of course, uh, you directed the film Time After Time, which again sort of plays with this idea of, you know, so so in this sort of Holmes world, Conan Doyle is sort of reimagined as as Watson's sort of literary agent. He's like Conan Doyle, like you are, is the sort of yes. real person. Well, obviously, in Time After Time, you've got H.G. Wells, who is a real writer, but in that version he's actually a time traveler do you know what i mean there's this kind of and and so again there's that sort of blurring of fact and fiction and again of course um hg wells as he think one of the things i loved about that film is he thinks he's he goes undercover as he thinks as sherlock holmes without realizing that that's gonna uh, ring alarm bells <laughs> do you know what i mean he's presumably thinking no one will have heard of sherlock <laughs> holmes in 1970 whatever it is uh, but in fact he, he doesn't realize what a big reputation he has exactly I must have laughed hard when I came up with that. Yeah, <laughs> because, I mean, coming to that as a Star Trek fan, there's also a sort of parallels with um, with Star Trek Four, another film, you know, about uh, time travelers in San Francisco. It, it sort of seems like there's the, these sort of strange um, synchronicities somehow between these different projects that you worked on that they, they kind of can feed into each other almost one way or another. Well, what happened with Star Trek Four was that they had another script. Uh, Leonard Nimoy and Harv Bennett, the producer, wrote the story about the whales and the and the extinction and the sort of the scavenger hunt that ensues. And they hired some writers and then they just they the writers went in a direction that the studio wasn't happy with. And so they rejected the script. And I got a very last minute call from my friend Dawn Steele, who was running Paramount at the time. Uh, help, help, we're supposed to start shooting very soon. We needed a new script. and so, so I stepped in, and when I said, what's the story? And she said, well, go talk to Harvin Leonard. So I walked across the lot, and they told me the story. And I said, gee, this is the same as time after time. It's another time travel story. But instead of coming from the past, they're coming from the future. But they're still going to San Francisco. Can't we go someplace else? <laughs> Can't we go to Paris? And they said, no, they couldn't go to Paris because the whales wouldn't fit in the Seine. <laughs> they could use dolphins. Well, wouldn't be the same. I think special the same. effects, special <laughs> effects with the whales was too far along by then. Right. Anyway, 
So that's why I wound up sort of doing retreads of time after time in Star Trek IV. And in fact, there were scenes that I cut out of time after time, which was the first movie I'd ever directed. And I made a whole bunch of mistakes. So there were scenes I just had to junk. Um, but then I found I could put the same material in a slightly rejiggered way uh, into Star Trek IV. So my advice to writers is, you know, never throw anything away. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I noticed in your book, A View from the Bridge, you talked about, um, you say, I think you see yourself as a recreator as much as a, a creator, that idea of kind of, um, and it, it seems like a lot of the uh, things that you've worked on, you're, you're someone who's very comfortable playing in someone else's sandbox, whether that's Conan Doyle's sandbox, Gene Roddenberry's sandbox. I know you worked on a Bond film. I think, I guess, must be the same kind of thing. I mean, going into someone else's universe where to some degree the rules have been set, but at the same time, I guess a lot of people felt with The Wrath of Khan, you know, that was a film that was kind of breaking a lot of rules uh, or at least bending a lot of the, the rules about Star Trek. Uh, and again, with Undiscovered Country, kind of bending some of those rules. Um, but it seems like you're someone who's very comfortable kind of going into someone else's world and shaking things up and doing something interesting with it that maybe that person wouldn't have been able to do themselves in some ways. Well, in the first place, I... You know, I take my hat off to people who can make things up from scratch, from nothing. Mm -hmm. um, I am I am simply amazed. Uh, it clearly is not my strength. My strength, uh, and it's it's significant. I think that I'm very interested in recycling. I'm re okay. recycling garbage, um, recycling buildings. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the Cannery or Garadelli Square in San Francisco, but these were old 19th century uh, where, uh, wharf side warehouse factories on San Francisco Bay. And they were taken and rejiggered uh, into amazing shops. And for all I know, they'll be rejiggered into to something else. But I uh, and they got all kinds of architectural prizes for that. Um, and I sort of like the challenge the the format, for example, of an English sonnet, we all know what that is. And the idea of how to fill that form, or if you like, you know, pour new wine into a familiar shaped bottle, uh, that's all very interesting to me. Another analogy that I once made, I don't know how it will land, but that doing a Star Trek movie is like composing different music uh, to, say, the Catholic Mass, where the text, the text is a given. What does the Agnus Dei, the Dies Irae, the Resurrection, all that stuff is there to begin with. But you can't tell me that the Haydn Mass in Time of War sounds like the Brahms German Requiem or the Vivaldi Te Deum. Um, they just sound, or the Mozart Carnation Mass, they sound completely different, but basically it's the same words. It's just different music has been um, uh, set to them, or they've been set to different music, and they sound completely different. So within that framework, yes, I'm intrigued by the given of, a, of, of something that already exists. And Stravinsky, it once be, it 
might do we do well to remember I think he was lecturing at the University of Texas and he said first you must learn all the rules so you can break them and I you know I think that art does not happen by accident uh, and I think that what you talked about a minute ago the breaking of the rules only becomes interesting or exciting or meaningful if everybody understands what the rules are, including you. You can't just go blundering in, which is why I despise most Sherlock Holmes movies, because they have nothing to do with what Arthur Conan Doyle was at such, relatively such pains to, to create. So I always start by saying it's, it's got to be, it, it, it's got to be canonical or canonical, I suppose, before I can interfere with it. Um, I was once offered to do something called Young Sherlock Holmes, and I said to the producer, what it's about? What is it about? And he said, oh, it's about how Holmes and Watson met in school. And I said, no, they didn't. And that was the end of that. <laughs> Talks yourself out of a job quite quickly on that occasion. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. Fair enough. Um, I'm kind of curious, talking about that, I mean, working on Discovery, were the rules... Because that's a show, I guess the kind of current uh, slate of Star Trek that we're getting, it does feel like it's got a sort of different tone in some ways. Some of the rules have kind of changed. It, it, did it feel quite different to working in that kind of era, I guess the sort of half Bennett era of the original series films? You kept coming back to the kind of same people and as much as you might bring a different spin, it might be a Cold War thriller by the time you get to the undiscovered country that you're sort of bringing to that. Um it, is is Star Trek in the 2010s a, a different sandbox to play in than Star Trek in the kind of 1980s and early 90s? Or does it feel like coming back to the same thing? No, it's not coming back to the same thing. It may be coming back to bits and pieces of the same thing. But all art is ineluctably product of the time in which it was created. Every generation gets the Sherlock Holmes it deserves. I put that in quotation marks, but you get the general uh, the idea. Renoir doesn't just look like Renoir. He looks like late 19th century French Impressionism. Mozart doesn't just sound like Mozart. He also sounds like late 18th century Middle European orchestral uh, music. And by the same token... Um, First of all, it, it's it's a different format. The, the movies were feature films. They were self-contained. Television is different in many, many ways um, for many, many reasons. A series is an unending, you know, almost sort of like the Iliad or, or the Odyssey. It's, it's an extended saga. Um, it doesn't just have a, a, a two-hour, you know, bag of popcorn limit to it. And secondly, yes, people with an enormously different sensibility living in an enormously different time are creating it. So inevitably, there were a lot of differences. There are a lot of differences. And you, and you, you have to reinvent. You have to keep, um, if, if it's just a regurgitation of what has gone before, I think it palls very quickly. I think it becomes boring. You have to mix it up. 
And I guess each time you come back to, I mean, I don't know whether that's the same coming back to Sherlock Holmes after a 20 odd year gap, but at, at least presumably you've changed, your life has changed, you, you know, kind of bringing different stuff to the project each time. No question. Um, I just wanted to ask one final question. Um, I, I know that with uh, Wrath of Khan, you were very against the idea of bringing back Spock, of resurrecting Spock in the next movie. Um, of course, that's something Conan Doyle had done as well. I mean, what's your what's your feelings about Sherlock Holmes coming back from the dead? <laughs> that is brilliant. That's a wonderful uh, point. Um, I was asked to direct Star Trek Three, and I said, what's that one going to be about? And they said, well, it's about how, you know, Spock comes back. And I said, resurrection? We're, we're, we're talking resurrection? I don't, I don't know how to do resurrection. Um, which, I mean, from a theological point of view, I think is, is true. The relationship between Doyle and Holmes is a very prickly one, certainly as far as Doyle was concerned. He kept trying to get rid of Holmes. He said, Holmes takes my mind from better things. I think what he really meant was that he takes his readers' minds from better things because the readers were always clamoring for more of this. And he would have killed him six stories earlier, but for the insistence on his mother's part, and he was very much under her thumb, uh, that he do no such thing. Um, you've actually ended this on a very provoking uh, comparison between resurrecting Spock and resurrecting Holmes. I've been asked a lot of questions over the years, and this is not one that has cropped up. (laughs) Usually when I talk fast, you can tell I'm playing a tape because I'm a very slow thinker. So I may have to end this on a note of suspense which is to say, I'm, I'm not sure. I have to grapple with this. This is one, one mystery we don't have the solution to. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, in both cases, I suppose it was, you know, whatever you think of the decision, many great things came. You know, if they hadn't brought Spock back, you wouldn't have got to do Star Trek Four and Star Trek Six, two more films that are, you know, very much beloved uh, by fans, um, or at least they certainly wouldn't have existed in that form. So, you know. That's absolutely true. I uh I greatly bemoaned the process by which he was brought back, while at the same time um, being grateful, I, uh, I guess, that he that he was brought back. Um, you know, there were other ways to do it. For example, when Doyle wrote The Hound of the Baskervilles, Holmes was still dead. He didn't bring him back to life. He said this is a posthumous memoir um, right. yeah you know so you there's plenty of gaps in the chronology of this of the Holmes stories where you could sandwich in more pre-reichenbach uh material and i suppose you could have done that with spock as well and maybe that would have seemed more plausible to me i i don't like the idea that when people die in fiction they never seem to really die um mm-hmm which doesn't seem to me very reflective of real life, although perhaps that's the point. Maybe so. Well, that's uh, certainly a... Fiction is where you get to have your cake and eat it, too. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, that's a, a somber note to end on, I suppose, one way or another. But thank you so much for joining me. It's been been great to talk to you. Um, do you want to just let our listeners know um, about the, you know, if there's anything they, they need to know about the Peculiar Protocols, who it's published by, that sort of information, if it's helped them track down a copy of this book? I guess my book is available for sale on Amazon. It's called The Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols. The audio version is read by uh, David Robb. Um, who many of you may know from innumerable movies and television shows, including I, Claudius and Downton Abbey. Um, it's published by St. Martin's or Minotaur, which is a division of St. Martin's. I don't know who the English publisher is off the top of my head, but I, I think everybody should buy it at once. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll second that. Thank you so much for joining me. Take care. Previously on Trek.fm, The Line, a Star Trek Picard podcast. I like the character, but I would have rather seen Noonien. <laughs> okay, interesting. Tiebreaker to Clerk Zalagi. That's your new nickname is Tiebreaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Chrissy, what do you think? Since Brandon and I think exactly the opposite. Yeah, um, that's all right. <laughs> that's why you got to have three people. It works better. Earl Grey. No, I think the hat's yeah. going to get bigger, but also double as her <laughs> spacecraft. It'll unfold, it'll envelop her, and she'll be able to just walk out an airlock and zoom off. <laughs> oh, it's wow. her personal transporter. Oh, there comes the edge. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. I like yep. it, Amy. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. For a logic extremist suicide bomber to be shown on screen in Star Trek, blowing up a ship with a high profile ambassador on it in yeah. uh, Sarek. It is doing exactly what Star Trek usually does in terms of bringing something from the real world straight back into the show. And I thought that that was one of the most stark examples of that in season one with Vlatak. Yeah. The Ready Room. This story, Una's book, which is excellent, and the upcoming third season of Discovery from what we've seen so far are all at their core commentaries on our present day. They're commentaries on Brexit, they're commentaries on the Trump administration, they're commentaries on the sort of the way that countries and governments around the world are turning their back on globalization and they're becoming insular. And, you know, science fiction has always been about social commentary and Star Trek has been about social commentary and so what we're seeing is modern day commentary on the current climate of the world and that's the reason that these stories are taking the form that they're taking as far as I see it and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, 
into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, PatronZone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at ClaraGeneMC, and Tony at at AJBlackWriter. You're blended all right.